Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and this is Beneath the Beabub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. This is the series where I'm seeking stories of hope and listening to brilliant, radical and innovative ideas for solving some of the critical problems facing wildlife. Right now, up to one-eighth of the world's species are at risk of extinction and it's down to us to act now or lose them forever. The places where wildlife and humans touch are not idealistic, harmonious locations. They often have raw edges, blurred boundaries, and are fraught with conflict and competition. Furthermore, the external pressures imposed to protect wildlife don't always support the people whose shoulders this change rests on. That's why we're looking at examples and hearing from people working directly with and in those communities. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Dillis Rowe, Chair of the Sustainable Use and Livelihoods Specialist Group at the IUCN, member of UK Government Darwin Expert Committee and Illegal Wildlife Trade Advisory Group and a trustee of Resource Africa. Dillis is a passionate supporter of sustainable use and protecting the rights of rural communities to benefit from wildlife and have a seat at the table when it comes to conservation. Ensuring that local and indigenous peoples are at the front and centre of environmental debate and legislation has been her life's work. Please join me and Dr. Dillis Rowe for a conversation beneath the Beabub. Hello, Dillis. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Gordon. Where am I speaking to you from? I am sitting in a very small cupboard, which also doubles up as an office in my house, which is near Cambridge. Well, do you know, I was looking at you on the Zoom and I thought that's either a very large cupboard or a very small office. (laughs) I can touch the walls with my hands either side, but it serves a purpose, so it's fine. Dillis, I think we should start by explaining what the role of the IUCN is and why a livelihood specialist group exists within it. So IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, is the world's largest conservation organisation. And it's essentially a membership organisation. It has as its members governments, non-governmental organisations, Indigenous people and local community organisations, about 1,300 of them in total, um, who all join and and collectively decide on conservation policy on a four-yearly basis that, that they are committing to. But it also has associated with it, as well as the members and the secretariat that, that run the organisation, it has a series of commissions. And the commissions are comprised of essentially largely volunteer experts who give up their time to provide technical expertise and advice to IUCN and to other international conservation policy forums. So the Sustainable Use and Livelihood Specialist Group, which I chair, uh, well, it actually sits between two of the commissions, the Commission on Species Survival and the Commission on Environmental, Economic and Social Policy. And it sits across the two of those. And essentially, it's comprised of There are about 200 members of the specialist group who are all experts in various aspects of the sustainable use of different wildlife species. And we're on hand to put together technical guidance and advice as and when required 
by IUCN or by its members. So this term sustainable use, you think of it in terms of products and the things that we use in our life. So what does it mean in the context of wildlife, whether it's plants, animals, any species? Well, on a very practical basis, it means a whole variety of different practices by which people utilise different species or different bits of different species. Some forms of use are extractive. They actually take the species out of its habitat in order to use it. So, for example, if you are collecting medicinal plants and taking them away and using them to to produce your medicines, and then others are non-extractive, you experience and utilise the species or the habitat in situ. So, for example tourism, if you're going to view wildlife, or many cultural uses of wildlife where you're just experiencing the spirituality or the cultural associations with wildlife. And then other forms um, are lethal. So for example, if you're hunting and you're actually killing wildlife in order to use it, and then some uses non-lethal where you are maybe using bits of a plant or, you know, you're tapping trees for rubber or you're using bees to extract honey. So it's a whole mixture of different types of practices that that all collectively are different forms of utilisation. But sustainability is the key thing. Sustainability is absolutely key. And it's really interesting, actually, because non-sustainable use, so over-exploitation of wild species, is a key driver of biodiversity loss particularly in marine ecosystems where overfishing is is a major problem. But at the same time, sustainable use is recognised as a key component of global conservation policy. So it's one of the three pillars of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, for example, that recognises that sustainably utilising species is a key way of incentivising their conservation while also at the same time meeting the needs of the people that use them. Yeah, I think kind of traditionally we tend to think of conservation as being animals living in protected zones and utilising wildlife is something that's kind of frowned upon. But of course, in day-to-day life, we use nature for everything, every aspect of our life, everything we use in our modern lives comes from, is founded in, in nature. Yeah. I think the word use for, for many people makes it sound like you're kind of exploiting the wildlife. But actually, we, we do use the term to encompass the kind of living with and experiencing and it all being part and parcel of your culture. I mean, many indigenous people and local communities don't see themselves as separate from nature. They see themselves as part of it. So they're constantly using nature, but they probably wouldn't use that term because it is a very kind of, yeah, it does sound exploitative. But I think it's really important. I think conservation in zones and in protected areas has a key role to play. But it's really important to recognise that so much of the world's wildlife lives outside of those protected areas. And in many cases, having an opportunity to use it and benefit from it is the only thing that really keeps people maintaining habitat for wildlife. You know, otherwise they could just convert it to other forms of use if it's not a protected area and you're just relying on people to have it in their own you know, the equivalent of their own backyards. I suppose that as the term sustainable use, it sounds like something, a new a new concept. But of course, there are Indigenous people all around the world and communities that have been living like that, as as we did 
as well. We, we were kind of sustainably using nature just a few thousand years ago. Every single one of us are only here because our ancestors were particularly good at understanding nature and living as part of it. It's weird because I think in the UK particularly, we have this broken relationship with with nature and a different view. We do view it as of something other and we might engage with it and we, we love it, but there's a weird thing. And I think it's of maybe not uniquely British, but I think we have a very different relationship with the wild world to a lot of other countries. Yeah, I think we do. And I think maybe not just British. I agree with you. I don't think it's just a solely British thing, but I think it's quite often a northern thing to sort of see people and nature as separate and that we somehow we've got to protect nature from people rather than seeing these two things as being part and parcel of the same system that we all live in, you know, our global planet that we all inhabit together. So we need to see ourselves as an interconnected system rather than separate from it. I suppose Britain, maybe more than any other country, has managed its wild places to an extent that they no longer resemble (laughs) what it once was. (laughs) I just got back from the the, the Yukon and I was just loving how so many of the people there were just engaged. Okay, they they were kind of using the nature and some you know met hunters and people are just sort of trapping and hunting people in tourism but there was certainly a kind of a, it seemed to be the outdoors was more part of their life than it seemed for a lot of people kind of in in other parts of the the global north yeah and sadly that'll probably be an increasing phenomenon not just in the north but across the world as we gradually increasingly urbanize and so become more separated from nature you know i think that's going to be a general pattern there's more people living in urban areas now than not and that's only going to increase um uh, so your relationship with nature are you your country girl or a city girl How, where did you grow up now i'm a country girl i grew up in rural gloucestershire and spent a lot of my childhood out and about riding horses walking dogs enjoying the cotswold hills uh, it was actually really yeah beautiful i feel now that i you know, kind of don't take everything for granted and access to beautiful countryside for granted. I realised quite how lucky I was in terms of exactly where where I did grow up and the the countryside that I did have on offer. And was that just part of your upbringing, sort of being passionate about about nature and wildlife? Yeah, I don't know whether it was part of my upbringing. I was always passionate about African wildlife and Africa and and always had a, I don't really know where it came from, but uh, for ages I've always kind of had a interest in exotic rather than British wildlife. I know nothing about British wildlife, but yeah, I've always sort of felt a drive and an urge to go to Africa to experience it and also to work with wildlife. You know, initially I was really interested in zoos because that was the closest you could get to real wildlife in the UK. But, you know, since I've been working in my job, I've had the luxury of being able to visit a number of amazing countries with amazing wildlife. I was like that when I was, I was thinking about this recently, when I was about maybe 14, when my, I realised my dreams of becoming an international show jumper probably weren't going to be realised. <laughs> I watched a programme and it was in East Africa and there was an area that was going to be flooded and there was these sort of wildlife rangers rounding up all of these animals and there was a bush pilot and I thought if there's anything I could do anywhere, it would be a bush pilot in Africa. And I don't know why it just resonated, but there's something about it. I thought that's that's my thing. And then obviously get distracted with wildlife filmmaking, but it's a close, <laughs> it's a close second. Yeah, it's a good second. Yeah. <laughs> so you wrote your dissertation on the link between wildlife conservation and poverty alleviation. Did you choose that as a 
as a subject? Yeah, I did. So as well as working for IUCN, my main job, actually my paid job, is working for a sustainable think tank in based in London called the International Institute for Environment and Development, which does what it says in the title. It tries to make that link between sound environmental management and economic development, particularly at the local level. And we were working on community-based conservation at the time. And this is around in the sort of early 2000s. And I remember going to a meeting that WWF had convened, which was all sort of looking at experiences with bringing together efforts to conserve nature with local development. And at the same time, development agencies, the Millennium Development Goals had just been agreed. I don't know if you can remember those sort of back in the day. And they really prioritised poverty alleviation as the as the focus of international development efforts. And I remember being at this, this meeting at WWF and somebody standing up and saying, because do you mean to tell me that if I want to get money for my conservation project now, I've got to be able to make a poverty alleviation case? And I was like, well, of course you do, because your money's coming from development money and they're concerned with development and not with conservation. And why would you not think that you have to make that case? And it just made me really interested in the fact that people saw these two things, conservation and development, as two completely separate issues, whereas I'd kind of you know, thought of them as, as basically being two sides of the same coin. So my thesis was really looking at the extent to which these are separate endeavours or whether these two policy priorities for the international community do really intersect and share commonalities. And of course they do. They share common drivers and many common solutions. And I, th- I think a lot of people think that conservation and people are two completely separate things. But increasingly, the protection of wild places and wild species really depends on having these empowering local communities and having that engagement. And, that, and you know, they are the people that are living alongside wildlife. We I tend to think, I think in the global north that if we've got nature reserves and national parks and there's no place for people. But as you said, there's so many places, particularly in Africa, where the majority of the animals that live there are living alongside communities. 100%, yes. And it's really important, I think, to recognise that a lot of the land that's set aside for conservation is set aside by communities and by private landowners. It's not a nice national park that the government owns or manages. And in many cases, the wildlife that's on that land is incredibly dangerous and intrusive to those local communities, causes a huge amount of damage you know, to their crops, to their livestock, to them, to their own lives, to the lives of their children. And that's quite often not acknowledged at all. And we just expect people to live with wildlife and just don't understand why they might kill it or why they might decide, oh, I'm going to convert my land to agriculture because I'll make money from that and I won't make any money from wildlife. And this need to ensure that communities have the rights, but also the incentives to conserve is really absolutely critical to the long-term survival of species. Yeah, there is definitely a level of lack of knowledge. I think a lot of people think about when they think of threats to, to elephants, we think of ivory poaching. I was in Kenya a couple of years ago and I was working with a, a team that was going out and sort of, you know, trying to mitigate conflict with, with local communities, but also responding to cases of, of poaching. And in the time that I was there, 
by far the majority of call-outs that they had were in response to sort of retaliation against elephants. It wasn't, there was a few, one or two sort of poaching incidents, but it was that human-wildlife conflict, people living in these rural areas that whose lives were being impacted by, by these animals. Yeah, and I think that's quite hard for people in the north, particularly if you've not been to Africa or your experience of Africa is watching The Lion King or watching a David Attenborough documentary where you see very few people I think it's hard you know we all love elephants we want them to persist forever you watch them and you think they're incredibly majestic creatures and that's that's all we see of them we don't see them as frankly terrifying large animals that you know they can take the roof off a house they can destroy your entire crop in one night of crop raiding they can prevent children going to school because they're out there on the streets and, uh, you know, they are literally on the streets in some small towns in some places. I mean, looking at it from the perspective of Africans, they are, you know, they just see them as frightening large animals. They don't see them in the same way that we do. And I think we need to be able to see this wildlife through African eyes rather than through our own eyes to really understand what it's like to live with it. Mm. Yeah, I think in some ways I'm part of the the problem, having been making wildlife documentaries for the last 30 years or so. And it was always my frustration that there was we weren't telling the full picture or showing the full picture. And you go to somewhere even as wild and as beautiful as the Maasai Mara. And what I can see through my lens is of leopards and lions and wildebeest doing their thing. But I was surrounded by maybe 30 safari vehicles and there was all this that we had to take. We couldn't use any of the natural sound or the sound at the time because there was just so many people there, but we never turned the cameras round. That is changing. I think the BBC certainly is concentrating a lot more on conservation and of telling the whole truth. Not Maybe not the whole truth, but a lot more of the, the truth. The ICN specialist group, how does that link to your work at IED? It has very similar priorities. So my work at IED has always focused on the social aspects of conservation. So we do a lot of work trying to promote the right conditions for community-based conservation and increasing community voice in conservation decision-making and so on. So I was a member of the IUCN specialist group before I became the chair because of my work at IAD, which I thought could help contribute to the mission of the specialist group and that the expertise that I'd gained through my work at IAD could be a useful contribution. And then a few years later on, I found myself chairing the specialist group rather than just being a member of it. And is advocating for the the rights of communities to use their own natural resources, is that key? Yeah, it's absolutely key. And particularly not just advocating for them, but providing opportunities wherever we can for them to have their own voice and do their own advocacy. So, you know, going to events, organising events that they can be physically present at, whether that's at the national level or the regional level or internationally. So, you know, just to give you an example of that, when the UK hosted the last of the illegal wildlife trade conferences, you know, those conferences were typically where governments would come together and big NGOs we organised an event that happened in parallel that brought together communities from across the world to come together to London to share their experiences with each other about how they were tackling illegal wildlife trade. And as a consequence of that, we were able to then get some of those community representatives invited into the conference itself and to have a panel discussion in plenary in front of their governments and other governments and really, you know, speak for themselves at that conference rather than having somebody stand up and say, oh, 
And communities think this as well and, and speak on their behalf. So that was a great thing to be able to do and to provide that space where you know, we could invite them to our meeting and then they would then subsequently get invited and have a voice at this intergovernmental meeting. I think traditionally, rural communities were just didn't have a voice. They were completely disempowered. So at the start of your career, if you were to be in a rural part of, of Africa where there's of human-wildlife conflict, how would you have described that sort of relationship or the level of engagement with, with people and what, what they cared about and what mattered to them? I don't think that relationship has changed. I mean, I think that's been an ongoing issue of communities wanting to exercise their rights, being frustrated by high levels of human wildlife conflict, which I don't think has changed over the decades that I have been working and has only really recently begun to be recognised as an issue that needs to be taken seriously. And, you know, campaigning for for more involvement in decision-making about wildlife so I think when I started working, community-based conservation was only really beginning to emerge as a sort of a, a politically supported activity in different countries. So in the mid to late 80s, you begin to see community-based conservation emerging in Southern Africa, in sort of pioneer countries such as Zimbabwe, for example, and Zambia. But I think it's become, compared to today, it's now far more mainstream, much more government support and much more recognition by governments that this is the way to go. I, I still think there's a long way to go in terms of communities actually being able to claim rights and have a voice in decision making. And it varies hugely from country to country, depending on the extent to which governments are willing to kind of devolve power and authority and, and recognise this as a sort of a legitimate way forward. But I do think progress is being made. And I think it relates to, you know, kind of increasing democratisation processes in those countries, as well as just sort of increasing awareness of the value of community-based conservation. Civil society organisations are becoming more capacitated, gaining greater voice, more able to hold their governments to account. And therefore, they're also making the political space for local people to have a say in, in many more fields of life, not just in conservation, but in, in other sectors of life as well. Yeah, I suppose it's that sort of colonial legacy that, you know, as Britain ventured around the world, it was actually the first thing they did was was disempower local communities. And that has lasted for, for decades, hundreds and hundreds of, of years. So it's not supposed to community sort of based conservation isn't something new, it's just a return to pre-colonial times. But it's interesting now, for example, the discussions that are going on under the Convention on Biodiversity as parties to that convention are currently trying to negotiate a 10-year agreement on biodiversity conservation. One of the targets in that agreement is to increase the coverage of protected areas to 30% of the world's land area by 2030. And, you know, traditionally... 50 years ago, that would have been done with more national parks, more fences, et cetera, et cetera. And now there is near universal recognition that that target can only really be met with the active involvement and engagement of Indigenous people and local communities, and that their land and their conservation efforts are going to make up a significant portion of that 30% that we want to conserve. So, you know, I think it's certainly from a policy perspective, I think there's that recognition at the global level and by national governments. 
It's then turning that into practice and making sure we practice conservation in ways that don't disenfranchise local people. And you still see far too many examples of people being evicted from protected areas, you know, to make you think we're certainly not uh, getting this right all the time still. And there's one solution that never ceases to really depress me is building fences around some of the kind of last wilderness areas and it always just just does not seem like the solution it should be we should be striving for coexistence rather than wildlife on that side people on this side we definitely need to strive for coexistence although sometimes you'd be surprised people like fences because they keep the wildlife in (laughs) so it's more if they see the if they see the fences keeping the wildlife in as opposed to keeping them out that in some case it does give them extra security against crop raiding or human wildlife conflict but yes i agree with you it's a it's a sorry state of affairs oh yeah i think the whole the the, the wild world is certainly when i first started working and traveling back gosh 1990 the world has changed but the wild world has sort of been redefined in in my mind and it's not as wild as certainly as wildlife films make it make it out to be no and it's quite depressing isn't it if you look at population trajectories in different parts of the world and you wonder you know what is going to happen to that remaining space because there's so much pressure on land to grow enough food to feed a growing population to have enough roads and infrastructure wildlife is going to be squeezed into smaller and smaller spaces i was uh, i went to brazil just before christmas and that was one of the first places i went to in the in the 90s and when you flew kind of over the, the Amazon, you could fly for four hours easily, unbroken rainforest and look down. And it was the same route that I took in and I was looking out the window and it was reduced to about two hours of unbroken forest in that sort of southern part of the Amazon. So that's, yeah, in my lifetime, there's been a huge, huge loss of the habitat, but just the countless species. And, you know, it's a sad state of affairs that we're living in a world where we're losing species before we even know that they exist. Yeah. No, it is. It is, which is why we need to just try everything that we can to make sure that, you know, we have as many incentives for conservation as possible, which is why we get frustrated when some forms of sustainable use are deemed unacceptable by people like us that sit in our cosy homes in the north because they involve killing of wildlife. And they may be completely sustainable, but because they're, you know, people don't like them. So there's lots of campaigning against them. And I think... Well, actually, we need as many approaches as we can get. We don't have that many options in place to incentivise and finance conservation. So rather than campaigning to take things away, we should be looking for as many ways as we possibly can to pay for conservation and to incentivise people to keep wildlife on their land. When it comes to sustainable use, there's illegal use and there's wildlife crime. Can you just explain the difference between wildlife crime and illegal use of other other natural resources? So I think, well, a, a huge overlap between them. And I think a lot of it depends on how you define legality in many cases, because quite often legality is contested for some resources that people have utilised for centuries. Their, their own customary laws say that it's perfectly legal for them to use wildlife, whereas formal state laws make make some uses of wildlife illegal. So I think it's always worth questioning illegal use, you know, to to kind of define in, in whose eyes is that illegality happening. 
But there is no doubt that wildlife crime, which has been recognised as a serious crime, is, is essentially kind of organised crime, criminal gangs quite often coming from other countries, cross borders in very organised fashions and in ways that are linked to illegal trafficking of other resources such as drugs, people, small arms, has infiltrated the conservation sector. So there is a huge illegal trade in wildlife, wild animals and timber, you know, it's not just animals, plants as well, that goes way beyond, you know, kind of localised disputes about whether or not it's okay to hunt a monkey in that particular reserve or not, you know, something that we've done that the local community might have done for centuries. So I think there's a spectrum of different approaches. And I think there are clearly some uses of wildlife which are both illegal and unsustainable. Some things which are illegal, but actually they are perfectly sustainable. And then some things which are unsustainable, but actually still legal to do when you think about overfishing and overexploitation of some resources. So there's a lots of fuzzy territory between these different types of uses. In your opinion, what do we mean by sustainable use in terms of, I suppose, timber harvesting is a, is a good one. And that's quite easy for people to get their, their heads around. We sort of, you know, can't cut down trees without replanting. But are there other examples sort of maybe slightly kind of less apparent of sustainably used natural resources? Yeah, sure. So sustainable use is defined really clearly by the UN Convention on Biological Diversity. But they define it in a very ecological way, as you might expect from that convention. So it's all about you sort of using biological resources at a rate which doesn't undermine the ability of that resource to reproduce and then to continue to deliver benefits in the long term. You can also think about sustainability in terms of whether or not something is socially sustainable, you know, i.e. acceptable to local people, and also whether it's economically sustainable. And actually, I think it's important to kind of look at multiple dimensions of sustainability when we think about it, not just think about is this within the ecological carrying capacity of the area, or is it within the ability of the species to bounce back from this level of use. We do need to think about the economics of it and the social acceptability and also probably about issues around, you know, increasingly post-COVID thinking about is this sustainable from a health perspective. But examples would be, you know, if you think about hunting, for example, setting quotas so that you only, you can only take a certain number of individuals from a population and you might only take individuals that are of a certain sex just males or just females or over a certain age, you know, the, the criteria by which licenses would be given would be based on, you know, the, the reproductive characteristics of the species uh, and various other ecological issues. Tourism is an interesting one. It's, it's often considered to be sustainable because you're not taking anything away. You're not physically removing anything. So you're not depleting it. But, uh, you know, as you will have noted you go on some tourist experiences and wildlife is absolutely surrounded by people in Land Rovers with cameras and it it can really affect their ability to breed, to feed successfully and just disrupt their day-to-day patterns. So that's not sustainable either, even though it's not actually physically removing creatures from their environment. So I think, yeah, overall, it's quite hard to pin down a single definition of sustainable use. It depends on what it is that you are using. 
you know, how rare it is, how quickly it reproduces, how much you're taking away from it. And I think it's important thinking about it in these different dimensions, as I say, from an ecological perspective, obviously to ensure that you're not depleting it at a rate which it cannot keep up with, but also to think about these other social and economic aspects associated with use. One of my bugbears in relation to tourism, particularly in Africa, is various lodges, pretty much every lodge at the end of the day, there's a big fire built for the, the guests to sit around. And all of that, obviously, that wood mostly is sourced locally and much of it, it they're in protected areas. And there's that sort of, you find there's a whole range of smaller species that are really struggling because that's their habitat and the, the impact on water supplies. So yeah, tourism is one of these things that's sort of, and, set, and, and then obviously there's a kind of impact with global traveling. So you can't very well say, yeah, ecotourism is great. There's sort of great examples of it, but it's not unanimously wonderful and good f- for the environment. No, absolutely. And, and impacts like on the firewood or on water are quite often overlooked. You know, when we're thinking about, is this sustainable? We might look at the species and think, oh, no, there's too many tourists there for that cheetah. We need to manage that. But we don't actually think there's too many tourists there for the amount of water <laughs> that can be sustained. And, you know, who's not getting the water if the tourists are using it all for showers? It's quite often local people then don't have access to that water or the wildlife doesn't have access to that water. So, yeah, there are these different dimensions. Definitely, it's a complex thing to try and get your head around and even then to think about the metrics by which you would measure sustainability. Well, we like things to be simple when it comes to conservation. It is far from simple. And one sort of very complex issue, I think, is hunting or trophy hunting. And often I am asked, what are your views on hunting? And then it's really the answer is how long have you how long have you got? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> because I think people want me to say, well, I, I don't agree with hunting in any way, shape or, or form. But of course, hunting in Scotland is part of the rural economy, but also controlling deer numbers is essential. But I think when it comes to shooting bears and shooting lions, people just want me to say, no, I don't I don't support that. But of course, there's lots of good examples of when hunting is, is good for wildlife and is good for for communities if it's done properly. Yes, and that's one of the misperceptions that we're always trying to correct with our specialist group, that people deliberately say, you're just pro-use. I said, no, actually, our concern is with sustainability of use. And if the use is sustainable, then that's something. We're not pro-use at any cost. And when it comes to hunting, I think it, it obviously raises such emotions. And I think it goes back to the point we were making previously about the disconnection between largely urban northern people who watch wildlife on TV but don't experience it in reality and the reality of living with it. And and people think that if there was no hunting, there would be no killing of wildlife and everybody would live happily ever after in a kind of Lion King Disney-fied sort of way. But the reality is that, you know, actually there would still be lots of killing of wildlife. It would get done probably in a far more unregulated way because one of the things that trophy hunting does is bring in money to local people. It makes them think twice about killing wildlife because they think I'll get less money if I kill it because there's less hunting concessions to sell to other people. So 
if there's no money for wildlife, then the lion that you're going to kill is probably going to be the pregnant female with cubs because you want to wipe out as many as possible. And you probably see them killed in remarkably horrible grisly ways, speared or snared or poisoned. If you had regulated trophy hunting in its place, you'd be taking out males that are post-breeding age. You wouldn't be taking out pregnant females. Probably far fewer would actually get killed overall. But I think there's this perception that hunting means killing and therefore it's bad and that if we got rid of it, we would live a, a much happier life, a warmer and cuddlier life. There's also, I suppose, people living urban communities and their view of people living in rural areas as of their views are impacting on hunting, shooting and fishing. And you can understand that's the frustration that people have in rural economies because there's a majority of people that are have an opinion on someone else's way of life. And I think that's something, you know, these it's really important to have these discussions and for, for people to be informed, especially in this sort of day and age when you can be publicly shamed very easily. Even something as simple as I took my son fishing last year and I thought, oh, I put, caught a trout. I could have put that in social media. And I thought, actually, hang on. So I could be accused of being a, a murderer, fish murderer. So it's like, I think people have to be very careful, but it's kind of, it's, it's all born out of, you know, lack of, a lack of knowledge and understanding and people just wanting things to be simple. And as we've, we've discussed, it's far, far from simple. Yeah. And I can understand that sentiment a lot of time. And actually, I find that if you do talk to people about, you know, some of the complexities and explain some of these things and they have a better understanding, they, they then have a less of a black and white view about things. So we, for in our specialist group, we conducted recently a survey of the British public to talk about trophy hunting. And I think if you just asked in a binary way, do you or don't you like trophy hunting? Most people would say, no, I don't like it. I think it's wrong and it should stop. But if you then ask, would you support it if it demonstrably contributed to conservation? People think, oh yeah, yeah, okay, yes. Would you support it if it demonstrably contributed to local people's livelihoods? You know, yeah, you just get much more of a, you make people think and you certainly don't get the sort of nine out of 10 cats say, no, I don't like it. You get, well, maybe it's more of a 50-50. So I think it is really important to try and communicate these issues in a way that people can understand and not just in a, you know, the way it's currently portrayed in the media of sort of rich, fat, white people. <laughs> Those horrible photos that we all see of, of, and they generally do tend to be rich, fat, white people posing next to a, a dead creature is not the way to win hearts and minds over if you want to convince people that trophy hunting does have a role to play in conservation. Yeah, a lot. I think a lot of a lot of hunters are not the the best poster boys and girls for <laughs> for the practice. So, at the moment, what are your main and biggest challenges in your work? What keeps you keeps you awake at night when you're thinking about work? Oh gosh, all sorts of things keep me awake at night. But I guess from a from the perspective of the specialist group, it's really thinking about. Well, first of all, yeah, how do we counter this misperception that um, use of wildlife and killing of wildlife is bad and needs to be stopped? You know, how can we communicate better? How can we make our case better? Because we are really worried that, you know, there's an increasing movement against using wildlife. And if that begins to take more traction, then local people's livelihoods in Africa and elsewhere really will be 
jeopardized. And that is what really, really worries me because those people don't have very many other options. You know, they don't have the luxury of being able to change job or try out something different. They, they are living from hand to mouth and quite often making money from wildlife is, is one of the key things for them. So that really worries me that there's a, a beginning of a momentum to curtail wildlife use and make it all unacceptable. I'm also really anxious about opportunities for finding for, for communities to be able to have their voices heard. Although we've said that's getting better and they're getting, um, you know, they're having more opportunities to speak up, I still don't think that's enough. And I think so much conservation policy is made for people rather than with people. And it's not made, you know, in consultation with the people that then have to bear the consequences of the effects of that policy. So those are the kinds of things that really worry me. Yeah, how do we stop this roller coaster that potentially that's building that 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 could wipe out the livelihoods of so many people and, and in so many cases is based on misinformation or false information? And how do we genuinely give communities a place at the table and, and a real voice in decision making? And just to give you one example which isn't related to trophy hunting, you know, if you think in the context of COVID-19 and the links that were made at the time between COVID-19 and wildlife trade and immediate calls to ban wildlife trade. And of course, it's again made very black and white. Let's just ban all wildlife trade because it's all bad and look at COVID-19. And if we did that, that would literally be millions of livelihoods in jeopardy. The last question I was going to ask you, if you put your most optimistic hat on, what's your view of the future when it comes to sustainable use and conservation moving forward? Well, my optimistic view is that community voices will prevail, that sense will prevail. People will recognise that this isn't something that can just be decided like that. And there's so many great examples out there of communities using wildlife in ways that are incredibly sustainable, contribute to conservation and and support their livelihoods. I'm thinking of diverse examples from shearing vicuña in the Andes for the, you know, it, it's wool, which is really high quality and used in luxury Italian fashion. Catching these gigantic riverfish in the Amazon, piraruku, which um, generate both meat, but also again, really luxury leather for the fashion industry all sorts of medicinal plant and herbal plants that are used for teas and for other things that are in our that we consume all the time and just i think if we get those stories out and we can communicate them better and we just make people realize quite how much utilization of wildlife is part of everybody's day-to-day life we'll stop treating it as something which is slightly other and weird if not slightly underhand or downright illegal that it becomes more normalised and more acceptable. I think that will set us on a better path forwards. And finally, what is your favourite place in Africa that you've been to? So one of my really favourite places is Namibia. It's just such a stunning place of remarkable scenery and remarkable wildlife and just so many contrasts. But a couple of years ago, I was really, really fortunate to get invited to um, a meeting in Tanzania up in northern Tanzania. And as part of that meeting, we were taken on a a field visit to one of the wildlife management 
areas there. So the wildlife management areas in Tanzania are areas that are managed by local communities. So they've got high wildlife value, but they're not national parks or protected areas. It's land that communities are managing their own wildlife on. And we went to see a, a great and successful area called Radlin Wildlife Management Area. And it was just great to see the local community benefiting from wildlife, benefiting from tourism, and seeing the value in having wildlife on their land. I mean, it was just a stunning landscape. You know, you're, you're driving along. And this is when I feel really privileged doing the job I'm doing. You know, you're actually seeing elephants playing in water in a river and just thinking, my goodness, this is part of my job. I'm actually being paid to be here and witness this. And there are some places where people are beginning to be able to tap into the carbon market and make money from carbon offsetting and to just really be able to capitalise on their natural resources in ways that they haven't done beforehand. So I think that was a particularly insightful trip for me. And not least by the fact that we were treated to some local cuisine by the Maasai in the local area who made us roasted goat, also Maasai soup, which was goat blood sieved through grass and then mixed with lots of local sticks and herbs. And I had to be take the first taste of that. And uh, that was a memorable experience. <laughs> yeah, I think just to sort of pick up on what you said, it's not just about communities coexisting with wildlife and nature they have to for it to all work for there to be a future for wildlife and for for communities it has to be about them benefiting if people benefit nature will will benefit yeah it has to be about them benefiting and it also has to be about them not bearing the costs of it so also at this site in tanzania they were really massively investing in dealing with human wildlife conflict had some amazing technologies of flashing torches and firing chili bombs, elephants and all sorts of things, but just really taking it seriously and recognising the challenges of farmers. So even in places where they weren't directly benefiting from wildlife, they were not suffering the costs of, of wildlife, so they were prepared to tolerate it. Wonderful. Dillis, thank you very much for your, your time. And yes, keep up, the, keep up the great work. Thanks very much. Thanks for your interest. <laughs> Dillis did mention a couple of community conservation projects that have really inspired her in her work. I'm really interested to hear more about how they're happening on the ground now. Sam Shaba is from one of Tanzania's flagship community-driven conservation initiatives in Randilan. He explained a little bit more about the work of Honeyguide. My name is Sam Shaba. At Honeyguide, we focus solely on proving that community-based conservation can work and probably it's the only way for conservation to succeed. Today I'm calling from our offices, the main Honeyguide headquarters and the only branch in Arusha. Behind me is a little forest with beds that you might be able to hear in the background and in front of me is our offices. We have been working in northern Tanzania since Honeyguide was registered. But in this new strategy, we want to go everywhere in the country. So we'll be going other WMAs down south of the country. For the last five years, we had a strategic plan that focused only on northern Tanzania. With the three wildlife management areas, we wanted to make them financially independent, socially valued by the people who own it, and ecologically viable. So we wanted to just learn while we're doing it so we can develop a model that can be scaled up elsewhere in the country. In Tanzania, 
wildlife primarily was in national parks before independence. And over time, I think conservationists and government realized that because our national parks are not fenced, there's wildlife roaming outside the national parks. And in fact, there's more wildlife outside the national parks. Wildlife spends time outside for food, for breeding, and sometimes just to walk from one national park to another. So around two decades ago, the government decided to form uh, community conservation, and they formed a body called Wildlife Management Areas. In short, we call them WMAs. When they formed these, the model was where villages that are next to national parks will decide to come together, demarcate a piece of land, and make business out of it with the wildlife that uh, is in that land. There is today over 32 of those areas, 20 years later, and not a single one is sustainable with the definition of sustainability that I said. Ecologically viable, financially independent, and socially valued. There is very few, less than three, that makes money, enough money to run their operations, and the rest doesn't. And even the two or three that makes money are not very sustainable in terms of social and ecological. So Honey Guide was formed with the goal of, of making sure that people are benefiting from wildlife. And in turn, because they are benefiting from wildlife, they want to protect. So we started in the northern Tanzania with projects that were supporting communities to set up tourism businesses, crop protection activities, setting up community-based anti-poaching and things like that. We decided to pilot examples of successful WMAs that are financially independent, socially valued and ecologically viable. When we did our strategic plan, we chose two areas. At a time, it was Endowment Wildlife Management Area, which is next to Kilimanjaro National Park. And then the other one was Randalen Wildlife Management Area, which is on the uh, eastern border of Tarangira National Park. Both areas with large population of elephants, large population of people living around it, and both areas with a lot of encroachments and farming that was in the area. And I will talk more about Randalen, which is one of our flagship success areas. When we started working with them, it's a WMA that has been just set up. They have a governance team, which is required by law, uh, elected officials who are representatives. And then they didn't have any management team. They didn't have any protection team yet. They didn't have an office to operate from. They didn't have a base for, for the arrangers. So when we started, the very first thing we started was to set up an office and set up a base for, for the rangers, which is building uh, constructions and giving them vehicles for, for them to operate with. And then right after that, we started now developing systems and helping them. It was more coaching and giving the tools for them to, to now professionally manage the area. And also at the same time, starting with their governance team to help them become the governing body of this area so they can hold management accountable. Before we started working with them, there was nothing happening. So community was just dealing with the conflict with our life in their own ways. Say, like, make noises and try to chase away the animals by burning fires. Some would retreat to retaliation by spearing down the animals. So when we started in 2014, before even our strategy, 
we were doing protection. So with the team being there, there was some kind of support where the community would make a phone call and call the, the, the rangers to come and support using their cars and gu the guns to scare away the animals. In around 2015, we had come up with the elephant protection toolkit that we use today. It has been something that the community can use to defend themselves against animals, but every time they fail to do so, we have also developed a strategy and a mechanism where they can call in the rangers team to come and become their backup as a kind of building relationship between the communities and the rangers. So what we have today in communities that are very successful in crop protection, for example, is where communities are the front line. So they protect their crops themselves with the tools that they have been provided from the WMA. And when they fail, the ranger team is stationed not far from them. They can just call them in to say, we've tried, we've failed, or we know these animals, we won't even try, just come and help us. And that help is just minutes away from them. In Randolin, for example, by law, LWMAs are supposed to give the 50% uh, of the uh, revenues to member villages. So if a WMA makes $100,000, $50,000 will go to all the member villages equally distributed. And that is by law. So a WMA makes money and does that. And you would have expected that would be the topmost benefit for people to see. Yeah? And that's what I think in most WMAs they've been promised. Make wildlife management areas and you'll make money out of it. And tell you what, it is not the top benefit in Randolin and the WMAs that we work with. The top most benefit has been, surprisingly, the crop protection support and for Randolin, the grazing bank. So Randolin being the protector of grass for people's livestock when it's too dry outside. Those two are the top most benefit. You go down today in Randolin and you ask an average person, do you know a WMA? They'll say yes, or they might even say no. And you ask them, should we take it away? They will say no. And you ask them why, very likely, they won't say because of the money that the WMA produces that builds schools and hospitals in our villages. Most likely they will say because it protects grass and they protect our farms. I think livelihood is the key word there. That's the reason they, they, they value it so much. Primarily, when the WMAs were, were formed, the main business was ecotourism. So they were told, okay, you start this area, Demarket land, you'll get uh, two operators who will come and invest. They will build a property, they will have tourists, and every tourist will pay a fee at the gate, and that fee will accumulate to the money that you earn for you to operate. Now, that idea has worked, but not everywhere. There are places in the in the north, which are in the main tourism circuit of the country, so next to Serengeti National Park, next to Tarangire National Park, next to Ngorongoro, uh, next to Kilimanjaro uh, Mountain. Those places have worked so well. Ecotourism have been very successful in those areas, and you will see those are the WMAs that make the most money in the country. Now, when you go further south to areas that are too far from the main tourist circuit in Ruaha and then in Ruvuma, the WMAs there are struggling because that financial model hasn't worked and it will be very difficult for it to work. The government has tried to promote tourism in those areas and other practitioners, but it hasn't been easy. If you're, you're a conservation person, you want these areas protected, they have a conservation value. They have an ecological value of sort because they protect these national parks, but they can't make money from tourism. So what do you do? 
we have been experimenting with new models. Uh, a very successful one that is coming up now has been carbon in 1WMA in Makame WMA, which is very south of Tarangire National Park, the largest WMA in the country. Community are now earning up to $400,000 from carbon. Those forests are threatened. If nothing is done, those forests will disappear in a few years, and that can be proven by data, by satellite images showing the change. The biggest threat has been land conversion into agriculture. They are natural forests. They've been there for years. They've always been there. They protect wildlife in it. And because majority of the community, they are pastoralists, they also protect their livestock. Livestock doesn't really collide with, with wildlife in the area. So with carbon, how it works is that companies that produce a lot of carbon, airlines, uh, factories, and countries that produce a lot of carbon, they want to offset their, their footprint. So they pay money to support projects that will protect forests. Preferably natural forests, preferably community-owned, preferably forests that also have biodiversity value, like protecting wildlife. So in places like Makame, where they have over 4,000 kilometer squares of forest that would otherwise disappear, that money is very valuable. So you get companies that act as middlemen to verify the carbon that's stored, to verify the change that would otherwise occur, and then they sell that offset to companies, countries, and they pay these communities that money to keep protecting the forest. Thanks, Sam. I hope that this episode of Beneath the Baobab has helped you get a hold on how sustainable use models can present solutions for our wildlife and the communities whose livelihoods are tied in with the resources it presents. What's more, I think it's important that globally people are able to acknowledge our deep reliance on wildlife as a resource in medicines, food and a whole range of other products. It's certainly a reality we're all going to come across more and more in the coming years. If you'd like to know more about Dillis or her projects, you can find links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international projects. If you'd like to listen to our next episode, make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag Beneath the Beabub on social media. As you know, Beabub is spelled B-A-O-B-A-B. Positive dialogue and sharing ideas can happen anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Why don't you start a conversation with a friend, a family member, a neighbour or even a complete stranger? It's good to talk. I'm Gordon Buchanan and I hope you'll join me next time. Beneath the Beabub.